walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Hey everybody, it's the Camino Podcast, episode 25, the quarter century mark. I'm Dave Whitson, and today we continue our series rewalking the Camino Frances. And after a long stretch in the Meseta, we've made it out the other side. The hills, the mountains are looming before us and getting closer and closer by the hour. Today, we pick up where we left off in Leon, towards the end of the Meseta, and we cross the first mountain range, going up and over Fonsebadon and Manjarin and down to El Acebo and Ponferrada, and then back up to Osobrero, one of the most famous stops along the Camino de Santiago. To help me re-experience this walk and share some stories from along the way, I'm joined by two peregrinos. First, Rod Hookstra from Seattle, Washington, joins me to talk about the first half from Leon to Fonsebadon. And then after that, Bob Scheidt joins me to talk about the second half, Fonsebadon to Osobrero. And uh, this is just a wonderfully glorious, beautiful stretch of walking. And so it's no surprise that we have a lot to talk about, and this is another oversized episode, so I'll keep the intro short. One thing that I do need to mention, because I kind of buried the lead last time around, is you can find the episodes now, in addition to all of the other places you've encountered them before, on the Camino Forum, Ivar's Camino Forum online, and it's a great place if you want to be able to interact more than you can just on the Facebook page. If you already use the forum, it'll feel really natural to have a conversation there. And if you've never found the Camino Forum, well, you really should, because there's so much great information accessible on there. So just Google it, and you'll track it down in no time. So look for the podcast and jump in the discussion there. And maybe you'll have something to comment about from this episode. Again, we're off to Leon, and then we're headed up, up, down and up again, en route to Osobrero. Thanks for joining us. Quarter Century Camino Podcast. I'm talking with Rod Hookstra from Seattle, Washington, on a rainy and blustery Saturday here in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, we're going to talk about the next stage in our rewalking of the Camino Francais series focused on Leon and Fonsebadon. So thanks for joining me, Rod. Thank you very much, Dave. I'm honored to be here. Uh, it's great to talk with you. And um, so let's start off just by hearing when did you walk the Camino Frances and why did you decide to pursue the Camino de Santiago? So uh, my partner and I, uh, my girlfriend and I, walked the Camino Frances starting in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port on April 20. Uh, and we took the rest of April, all of May, and then finished in Santiago in early June. I don't remember the exact date. Uh, and then took an additional four days to walk all the way out to Finisterre. Mm-hmm. Um, we did it for a number of reasons. Uh, she had wanted to do that uh, since she was uh, quite young. In fact, had gone to Europe at one point uh, with the intent of starting it um, and then ran into some medical issues. Wow. Uh, wasn't able to even get to the starting point. So she has had that um, very high on her list of things to do for a long time and she was very determined not hmm. to allow anything to prevent her from doing it this time. Uh, for myself, I think um, a, a lot of reasons. Uh, probably the biggest one is just the sense of adventure. Mm. 
I found it a very intriguing possibility and, and, and was very much looking forward to it. Um, along the spiritual lines as well, uh, I've had a number of experiences in my life that people have said, oh, this experience will change your life. And I've always sort of poo-pooed that idea. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of came to a point shortly before the Camino that I said to myself, well, that that's silly. Maybe, maybe it's me dismissing the idea that I might have a life-changing experience that is actually, in fact, preventing that life-changing experience from happening. Hmm. Uh, so I went to, to the Camino with, with a more open mind as well. And so there, there was definitely a, a sort of a, a spiritual component for me for that as well. That's awesome. And this stretch that we're talking about is a really exciting and memorable part of the Camino because as you arrive in Leon and pass through it, you are you are essentially concluding the Meseta, and after days of, of a flatter portion of the Camino de Santiago, you can start to see the mountains rise up towards you. Do you remember what it felt like for you as you moved through this stage? I do. So lots of complex emotions all along the way, you know, <laughs> different things at different times. Uh, a very memorable moment, especially in Leon, was we took a rest day there. Uh, much of which was just spent sitting and, and drinking red wine on the main <laughs> strip, uh, the main road there into uh, into the cathedral, and watching the many, many, many pilgrim reunions of people who had mm. you know, overlapped but then missed each other by day, and that certainly included us as well. There were people who we hadn't seen for a week uh, that we were very, very excited to see, and so that was that was very much a high point uh, for me for Leon. Um, the sections beyond that, uh, you, you say the Maseta ended uh, in Leon, and, and it does, but the next day is, is quite flat as well. Oh before, yeah, before you start up to uh, Cruz de Ferro, and so it was, it was nice to have just one more sort of flat day uh, <laughs> immediately after Leon. Um, but then it was nice to see a, a change in, in the geography as well to start to get a little bit more hilliness again, um, and the architecture of the houses changed as well, moving away from the mud. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. construction of the Meseta and more towards the, the, the stone and, and, and flat rock. So the Briarly Guide and, and many of the others will break this this walk into three stages. And all told, it's, you know, about 78 kilometers from Leon to Fonte Badon. And uh, I know that you did this, you did this in four days, right? That's correct, we did. Okay, so we'll follow the general breakdowns of what you can find on, on the Camino Orozki site and, and in some of the guides for this stretch, but just a reminder, of course, that people can walk this however the heck they want. So um, they're, they're certainly not bound and locked into the stages as we describe them here. The walk out of Leon, as you said, is still very Meseta-y as you uh, head from Leon. And this is in a stage that's about 21 to 22 kilometers if you walk to Villar de Mazarife, longer if you take a, an opposing fork. So the route splits and pilgrims have to make a choice. Which way did you go? Did you fork left or right? Um, I don't remember what was left or right. <laughs> I know that I, I... Did you go towards Villar de Mazarife, which would be left, or right towards Via Dangos del Paramo? And... Yeah, we, we, we went to uh, Villar de Mazarife. Yeah. Uh, and that's where we stayed the night. Do you remember what, uh, what drove you to make that choice or why you decided to go with that? So we had lost our Briarly Guide uh, by that point. Mm -hmm. uh, we had we actually we had two of them along. One was the more in-depth one with a lot of background detail and explanations of places, and the other one, the one that we didn't manage to lose, uh, was was purely maps and just descriptions of routes. Mm -hmm. uh, 
At that point, I don't think we were interested in seeing anything particular um, off uh, on on the forked route, the longer route. Mm -hmm. uh, at that point, we I think we were looking at it and say we we hadn't been making real fast progress, and and even though it's it's not a race, there's still a little bit of you that mourns a little bit every time you meet people, and then oh we have to go slower, and they're up ahead, and we may or may not see them again. Yeah. So we weren't especially motivated to do extra mileage just for the heck of it. And, and really, we only did that once. We went to, um, um, earlier in the trip, we went to the Monastery at Samos, which was beautiful. Yeah, the two routes are fairly equivalent in length. I think the, the route that you took is actually a, a little bit longer. But the route that goes via Via Dangos del Paramo is basically parallel to the highway the whole day, or at least a big chunk of it. And what's nice about the walk to VR de Mazarife is that it's pretty quiet and you're um you're really well away from traffic and and frankly from from people for the vast majority of the day. Yeah, the photos that I have of that day are of very quiet country roads, you know, blue skies, big puffy white clouds. Uh and because we were doing it in the spring, uh, that section of the trip, like the, the early part of the Meseta, mm -hmm. was just yeah. filled with wildflowers, all mm -hmm. sorts of colors and lots and lots of little very temporary flowers that I think people walking a month or so later would, would not have seen. And there's very limited options for stopping for food along the way. Once you get past Virgen del Camino, you basically have, have one spot. There's a there's a nice bar with a big covered patio in, in Chozas de Abajo. But other than that, I think you are largely just stuck with whatever you've packed for the for the bulk of the walk to VR. Yeah, and I think by that time, I, I'm not sure we were packing food. We, we uh, very early in the trip, we had packed bocadillos with us uh, and then realized, hey, it's not that bad. We can, you know, we can get fine food along the way. I think that we probably start, stopped for our first breakfast at La Virgen del Camino. Mm -hmm. And by that time, we'd certainly fall into a pattern of first breakfast, second breakfast, <laughs> uh, lunch, snack, and then, and then pilgrim's dinner uh, after we got in for the night. Yeah. But I don't recall that we brought anything along with that for that section of the trip. We always had a little bit of emergency food. So, you know, an apple, uh, a granola bar, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but I think we looked at it and we're like, we can do this. We can do this segment in, in one long hike. Let's just let's just do it. And so you did it. And then you got to Villar de Mazarife. And what do you recall of your final destination for the day? Yeah, I really liked uh, that town. It was a little confusing at first for, for a small town. I got <laughs> surprisingly lost a, a number of times. Yeah, it's and sprawling. Number, it, you know, it is. And the, the roads just didn't quite run at right angles to each other <laughs> or parallel to each other. So every time I'd walk out of the, the main plaza, and, and by main plaza, I mean, you know, don't, don't <laughs> let me make that, think that's a huge thing. It was, you know, it's pretty small. But I'd always walk on just like the slightly the wrong road and, and like, this is not the right albergue that I'm near here. I need to go to this other one. But in general, it was it was it was pleasant. So we spent, you know, once we, we did a ritual of getting in, uh, finding ourselves a place to stay, uh, cleaning up and then finding uh, a bit of a snack uh, to eat. We just we just kind of sat in that little central plaza for a little while. Mm -hmm. It's right at the base of this sort of very imposing church facade. Mm -hmm. And and part of the reason why it's it's big and imposing is because the church is built on a hill. If you walk up the hill and you walk into the church on the other side, you're like, okay, well, this church really isn't all that big. Um, <laughs> but, but it's this sort of like sheer face uh, there, um, which, of course— like many other churches, had uh, these wonderful storks' nests in them. Mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, with storks flying in and out. Uh, and in fact, it was the next morning as we were leaving early um, that I got my very favorite photo of storks, uh, of, of a stork in a nest with a bit of twig in its mouth, clearly building its nest uh, from the top of that church. I remember the albergue there that I stayed in, Casa de Jesus, is just huge. I mean, the the real estate must have been dirt cheap in that town because this is a, a giant old estate with a huge yard, with a swimming pool, a bar. It's just a, a big, sprawling estate. And uh, and I, I don't think it's the only one in the town like that. There are a number of there are a few albergues that are are similarly laid out in VR. We had our albergue was wasn't quite that large, but yeah. but it was it was it was newer. It was clean on the inside. It was wonderful. Uh, they served dinner in waves in the basement because they only had a certain number of tables. And, it, and so you had to sign up for which dinner slot you wanted. Uh, but I remember that was one of the, our, our best experiences for a pilgrim's meal that had very reasonable vegetarian options. Hmm. I'm not a vegetarian. Uh, my girlfriend likes to joke that, that uh, while I prepared for the Camino by doing leg exercises and doing lots of walking. She prepared for the Camino by eating lots of pork in order to train <laughs> her body for the cuisine that would be available. Uh, and, and we had a very wonderful experience there. Um, uh, all all the, the courses for our, our pilgrim's meal were, were vegetarian, and she was delighted with it. It tasted wonderful. That's great. Uh, and so that's the that's the first stage, and it's it's not the most distinctive or memorable stages of the Camino, but it certainly is a an important transitional stage that is getting you to finish up the Meseta, leaving behind Leon, and positioning you for the beginning of the next really distinct stage of the Camino Frances. Before you go on, yeah. I, I hear moving on to the next stage, and there's one more thing that I want to say about uh, VR de Mazarife. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was, was truly one of the high points on my, on my trip. And I have lots of high points, but this was a great <laughs> one. Uh, there is a tiny little museum in VR de Mazarife called the Museum uh, or Museo uh, Antolin. Yeah. It's essentially this one guy who, as far as I can tell, worked for years and years and years for a telephone company, uh, probably is a line man, running up and down telephone poles, attaching wires, fixing things. And over the course of his lifetime has collected an unbelievable amount of paraphernalia that's all telephone related. And you go in, it's free. You go in and he's got this little courtyard that every single square inch uh, is just absolutely covered with little bits and doodads from his <laughs> life. And and then he talks to you. He doesn't speak any English. My Spanish is somewhat limited, but we were able to, to communicate enough uh, that then he showed me his collection of pottery down in the basement. And then he, we came back up, uh, and then there were just uh, several more rooms upstairs, which were, again, filled with telephones. And one room had uh, every model of telephone from, I don't know, probably 1950 to 1972 or so, all laid out very neatly, very carefully on the table. And then another room had these stacks and stacks of magazines that had articles of uh, about telephones. And, and I think he was especially proud of the collection of photographs that he had of famous people using the telephone. <laughs> uh, so he immediately figured out I was an American quickly and showed me the one of JFK. Uh, of John Kennedy speaking on the telephone. It was remarkable just how much care and love had gone into this uh, museum. And, and that was, that was, it was a truly magical moment for me finding this gem uh, in this otherwise small, somewhat nondescript town. Yeah, how did you, did, were you just walking down the street and stumbled across it? 
we were sitting at the plaza and he came by and was handing out little business cards with the name of his museum on it. Yeah. And sort of like we took it and like, oh, okay. And then uh, whoever it was we were sitting with looked at it and says, oh, I heard about this. This is supposed to be a, a little interesting museum. Um, and so I said, great, I want to go. Yeah, I have, it, it reminds me of, of this moment I had on the Via Francigena. I was in this small town called Fucecchio, and uh, a, an old man came up to me and realized I was a pilgrim and then brought me back to his house where he had this huge collection of old radios. And, you know, Italy's the the birthplace of the radio. And so he had all of these tons of different models and then, like, took me down these winding stairs into his wine cellar to show me, you know, his wine collection. Totally unsolicited, but just the kindness of this man who wanted to show his collection, his life's work with a pilgrim walking by. And it, it sounds like the telephone museum that you're describing is is very much along those lines. You know, it, it really is. And, and sometimes with world travel, uh, it, less so with the Camino. I think it's easier with the Camino, but sometimes harder for doing other world travel is to actually make connections with people who live in that area. And it mm -hmm. sounds like both your experience and my experience was a fantastic opportunity to do exactly that. Yeah, absolutely. Leaving VR de Mazarife then and saying goodbye to the museum, the next stage is, you know, as described in some of the guides, is a longer one going on to Astorga, which is 31 kilometers. Where did you head that day? We stopped in Santa Benyaz del Avalde Iglesias. Okay, so um, so you stopped a bit before Astorga. Was the decision just made based on distances and what was comfortable for, for you? Yeah, that's exactly right. We knew that we that there were things that we wanted to see in Astorga, but we didn't necessarily feel the need to stay there overnight. So yeah, that decision, like most of our, our, our decisions for how long we want to walk, were simply, what do we feel like today? What What's a good amount uh, to, to walk? And then doing that and, and deciding at the time, like, oh, I feel good. Let's, you know, let's walk some more or nope, I'm tired. Let's stop here. Yeah. Leaving Villar de Mazarife, the, the walk... Frankly, I don't remember that much of the walk in the through the first 14 kilometers or so um, between VR and, and Hospital de Orbigo. Um, Hospital is one of my my favorite spots along the way, so I always have a certain degree of just being locked in and hyper focused on getting there once I get close. But do you remember anything from your your morning out of VR de Mazarife? I don't have any strong memories of that. I, I want to say that. Uh, we started to get a little bit more undulation of uh, of geography. Yeah. Um, that that I remember walking up and down a couple hills before by the time that we got to Hospital de Orbigo. But it felt like sort of a very gradual transition, not necessarily something I would notice at the time. Okay, so we can be like me on the Camino right now and just immediately go single-mindedly into Hospital de Orbigo, which is an awesome town. You arrive crossing the magnificent old gothic bridge and uh and arrive in the town what are your recollections from hospital i remember getting there and and seeing the bridge and then becoming excited like all oh, right this is the bridge with the story about the night and part of you know part of the problem of having <laughs> having lost our Briarly guide earlier in the trip uh was that i occasionally had to like borrow other people's to read the background <laughs> of what was going on and I, I remember the story of the night it was something that i had read in preparation for the camino back in seattle uh and i was i was very excited to see it so we spent a lot of time there taking pictures of, of the bridge uh looking up on the internet the story and, and reading it you know thinking about all the things that happened there and, and what we did is we we crossed that bridge 
and then immediately stopped at the first bar on the left <laughs> uh, and sat out on the veranda drinking uh, a slightly more expensive red wine in this case. <laughs> uh, I think that the people who own that bar are, are quite aware that that's a, that's a great destination for pilgrims. And I think that they were charging a little bit more because of that. And it was fun just to watch just, you know, the, the, the steady stream of, of pilgrims come over the bridge and stop and admire it and, and continue walking. That was, that was a lot of fun. And, and there's something else I remember now, too. We were playing sort of cat and mouse with a guy who, was, uh, who had a wooden flute along. Um, and he would periodically take it out and play it. And most days we didn't see him. We heard about him from other people. Uh, but I think that was the first day that we actually caught up to him. And so when we finished crossing that bridge, he was just a block down the street playing. And so while we were sitting out there, we could hear him for a while. Uh, before he packed up and, and walked on uh, sooner than we did. And this town is, as you mentioned, you alluded to the night. Uh, I'm assuming you have Suero de Quiñones in mind, who was uh, this this famous knight who participated in what's regarded as the, the last true medieval tournament in Hospital de Orbigo in 1434. And so to this day, the town is still very closely linked with um, the medieval era, with jousting, with with knights and uh, and that sort of thing, and continues to have medieval celebrations every year. While we were there, it was clear that they were setting up uh, for a jousting tournament that was either going to happen uh, the following day or maybe that weekend. Uh, so there's a long green path uh, next to the bridge. The bridge used to flow over water, uh, and then a number of years ago they built the dam, so the river is, is greatly reduced in that area. But where it did used to flow over water, there's there's a uh, there's there's clearly a jousting uh, range there, and yep. they were they were setting up tents and and colorful flags in preparation for that. We kind of wish we're like, oh shoot, we're here a little bit early. <laughs> I wonder if we can stick around and watch jousting for a while. That'd be great. And I've been I've been there a couple of times when it's happening. So I think it happens at, at different points in the year that they have multiple celebrations but they go all out they have the jousting they have falconers with falcons flying up in the air there's there's all sorts of stuff going on in in that town and I, you know one of the things that's really cool from a pilgrimage perspective is that you know the jousting is and the and the tournaments are they have their connections to pilgrimage as well like that knights tournament in 1434 um it was a it was a jubilee year it was a holy year and suero de quinones it said completed the pilgrimage to Santiago at the end of the tournament. So there is very much uh, a connection there between the, the tournaments, the jousting, and the Camino. Yes, I, I believe that he and the nine knights who assisted him um, uh, all went on to uh, to Santiago after that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's a great spot. And uh, there, uh, there have been a couple of occasions when I just... I just walked from Leon straight to Hospital de Orbigo, a longer day, about 35 kilometers. But uh, but I just love spending the night there. The municipal albergue is, it's showing its years, but it's it's really just a lovely, homey spot. And there are some other great albergues in town. So, you know, if people are, are feeling comfortable with longer distances, it's another option heading out of Leon if you, uh, if you want to be able to spend a little bit more time checking out the bridge and the town. Which is absolutely worthwhile. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's awesome. But for, for each of us on our most recent experiences, we didn't. And the guidebooks don't advise it either. They suggest that you continue. So what's the walk like as you leave Hospital and the bridge behind? Um, once again, sort of, you know, uh, slightly rolling hills. Yeah. 
certainly a lot of farmland, a lot of rural agriculture in, in, in that part of Spain. I don't remember what the crops were. I think that we were out of wine country at that point. At the point where we got to Santa Benias de Valde Iglesias, that was an even smaller town uh, than Villar uh, del Miserife. So there were really only two albergues in town. And as far as we could tell, that was about it. There was a church as well. And the church was interesting for me because uh, it had retained the colonial facade of that sort of brickwork with the three bells in it. And then, of course, the storks on top. Uh-huh. Um, but the rest of the church uh, had looked like it had been completely built brand new in about 1970 or so. Hmm. They had a brief service and I was able to quick. Uh, sneak in there and and see the inside of the church, which which provided some interesting contrast. So many of the churches that are uh, that you find along the Camino um, that are open are, are ancient. And certainly, the cathedrals are very very impressive. So this looked more like I, I would say you know a, a working man's church. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't as ostentatious as a lot of other uh, churches were. It was clearly a much more modern. Uh, design. It looked like a, a place where people really truly gathered and, and hung out and, and uh, had other social activities. But, but we're still absolutely had in mind to keep the original facade and, and keep the storks, which were always beautiful and wonderful to see as well. And so you spent the night there and most people, most people don't. Like I've, I've actually never thought about the idea of staying in, in Santibanes, but I imagine it was a, a nice pilgrim experience. You know, it's just you, the pilgrims, a uh, small population that lives in the town. And then the next day you were off to a, a much bigger place, which is where for many they end this stage, is to Astorga. So you were about 11 kilometers headed from Santibanez to Astorga. And there's a, a bit of an uphill along this this walk and then a downhill, a considerable downhill towards Astorga. So what do you remember from, from this next leg of the walk? But I tell you, the, the thing that I remember the most clearly is the guitarist who is at the top of that hill. There's yeah. a cross just before you start down. He sits there and serenades uh, pilgrims. It was such a magical experience for us uh, because he asked us our names and then he sang about the fact that we were walking on to Santiago. <laughs> um, and he's been clearly playing guitar for a very long time because he would do these little guitar tricks where he would flip his guitar around. And, and tap on it to provide a little bit of percussion and continue right back into the song without missing a beat at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just stood there and, and, and hung out with him for a really, really long time. We could see a storg in the distance, but in that moment, we were so thoroughly enjoying it uh, that that, once again, was absolutely one of our high points of, uh, of the Camino. It was, it was utterly delightful. I have since found out that lots of other pilgrims have the same experience. Uh, I was because I was remembering that earlier today and I was trying to nail down exactly where that was. And it was. It was, it was before the entrance into Astorga. And so in the process, I found lots of other videos on YouTube of, of the same guy singing the same song, doing the same guitar tricks. And, uh, and so that was that was really wonderful there. It's a great part of the experience there, and and it's amazing just how much time that man spends out there playing guitar for pilgrims. I mean, he is he is out there all the time. Have you seen him yourself then as well? Oh yeah, I have. Yeah, multiple times. So <laughs> yeah, he he owns that spot. So from there, you're descending down a bit, and you're uh, passing through San Justo de la Vega, which is a small town that then marks the. Uh, Really, essentially, the beginning of the suburbs for Astorga, as you uh, you descend and then climb back up into this uh, this really excellent hill town, quite sizable and uh, with Roman origins. 
And along the way, you endure one of the most <laughs> maddening stretches, which is the um, overpass for the uh, railroad tracks, which is a, a very lengthy process to navigate. Yeah, I seem to recall that. Was that? Oh, that was that was you. The, the long series of ramps. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Back in the day, they just let you walk across the train tracks, but no longer. Now you, uh, <laughs> now you add a quarter of a kilometer to your walk going up and down. <laughs> That's exactly. What we were complaining. We're like, look, this adds a whole other kilometer to our trip. We're walking up and down these ridiculous ramps. Yeah, it but was, it was like you know, like the mousetrap game, or you know, the like marble maze, you know. So like we're walking up and down, and you can see a pilgrim who physically is quite close, but they have to walk all the way to the end of the ramp and all the way to the end of another in order to actually get to you. It's a yeah. hassle. Yeah. Yeah, but Astorga's worth it in the end, I think. It is. So we had a lot of fun with Astorga. We you were you were talking about maddening things, and I thought you were going to refer to the fact that you kind of get into Astorga a little bit at the base of the hill. Yeah. Um, and then you have to walk up it. And, and we're both sort of like, oh, really? Did we really have to walk all the way down just to walk back up? Um, but walking back up into Astorga is absolutely uh, worth it. Um, we spent a several hours in Astorga, so much that we were pretty close to just saying, hey, we're going to stay here for the night. Yeah. So and a couple of interesting things about Astorga. One is we kept on finding that small towns were easier to find pilgrims meals in than large towns were. Yeah. And and one of the things about the the the, the Camino is is that our schedule doesn't line up especially well with when the Spanish eat their meals. Right. So we walked into Astorga and we're like, great, we're in a large city. We should be able to find a restaurant and have a good meal that maybe is a little different than what we've been having so far. And <laughs> there was none of that. There was more <laughs> snacks and tapas and plates of cheese and olives and uh, and maybe nuts if we could find them. Which, you know, don't get me wrong, the cheese and olives all the way along the Camino were fantastic and Astorga was, was no different. But uh, yeah, so we sat for a little while trying to wait a little bit for lunch hour and, and snacked and then we're like, okay, well, let's just keep going. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that we really loved about Astorga was the fact that there was a Gaudi building. Yeah. There. And uh, it, it's really interesting because there's a Gaudi building in Leon as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it doesn't strike you as all that Gaudi-ish. And, and it looked like the one that he had built at Astorga started to really show what we sort of think is as Gaudi with like swoopy entrances. And you could see elements of it that I think probably eventually made their way into uh, La Sagrada Familia in, in Barcelona. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we toured through that, and we also toured through the Astorga Cathedral, which was beautiful. It was, it was very subtly lit with, with you know, some nice pastel colors, and, and photography-wise, really, I had a really, really wonderful time there. It felt a little colder than the other uh, cathedrals. It felt a little bit more like a museum. It felt a little bit more like a showpiece uh, than, than the Cathedral Leon, which was, which was my favorite. Mm-hmm. And then somewhat late in the afternoon, later than we normally would have, uh, we had to make a decision. Say, do we do we stay here? Do we continue on? And we continued on. Yeah, Astorga is. Uh, I I've pulled a similar maneuver a, a couple of times, spending a good chunk of the afternoon in Astorga, really enjoying those dual giant buildings, the cathedral and the Gaudi bishop's palace, right next to each other. It's just a it's a gorgeous spot. Um, and then continuing on to another town, but. Yeah, if you do stay in Astorga, I think you do get some more uh, uh, appealing dinner options further on down the road. So that's that's maybe the one thing that you you missed out on food-wise. The other thing that some people look forward to in Astorga is there's a small chocolate museum there that's open for a couple hours every day. And I think the one thing that disappoints people, though, is that 
it is quite small and there are no free samples but <laughs> you know through the rest of the through the rest of the city it actually is a great spot to be buying artisanal chocolate designer chocolate there are a ton of stores offering really wide variety of of treats and i know the students on my trip have always enjoyed that and the option to get a marigato meal that there's um there's this very small uh, ethnic group local to this part of Spain the marigatos and uh so you can you can get a marigato meal that is basically just like really intensive meat overload <laughs> that is um <laughs> available in Astorga and then some of the small towns still ahead so so that's another um sort of distinctive feature of uh, of this part of the walk so let me get this straight. You hadn't had enough meat overload for your other meal. <laughs> yeah, you're you're talking to a vegetarian here, so I have not enjoyed a marigato meal. But uh, but I I can say that I have had students who have um who have thoroughly enjoyed the range and depth of uh of meat offered in the meal. It it outshines what one would otherwise get um in a menu del dia. So uh, so let that roll around your mind for a second. <laughs> I will certainly do that. We occasionally talk about doing uh, the Camino again, and if we do, if we would do the Francais or maybe the, the Portuguese uh, route. Um, but I will absolutely keep that in mind. Yeah. Uh, Meat heavy meal in Astorga. That sounds delicious to me. Yeah, give it a shot. Okay, so from Astorga, you are now really getting back into the mountains. And as we have structured it, this last stage is 26 kilometers from Astorga to Fonte Badon. But obviously, plenty of people stop in different places. It's definitely quite common for people to instead cut their day a little bit shorter by stopping in Rabanal del Camino. And so in your case, you continued on from Astorga to Santa Catalina, you said? Yes, Santa Catalina de Somoza. Yeah, so what was that part of the walk like? That, we walked in a lightning storm. You know, I have had lightning in this part, <laughs> in this stretch, particularly between Villar de Mazarife and Astorga, I, at least two or three times. It's, it's, it seems quite common in this part of Spain. That's interesting. We were, so we love lightning and, and thunder. Uh, I grew up in the Midwest and I've lived in Seattle now for 17 years. And that, that's one of the things that, I, that, that I, I wish Seattle had is more lightning than thunder. Yeah. So to, to be able to see that and experience that in, in Spain was, was a real uh, a treat for us. And, and we weren't even rained on. It was, it, was, um, it was more or less off in the distance. We could see it growing closer. We got a little bit of, uh, of rain from that, but mostly it was just pure joy of walking along and hearing these long rolling peals just sort of echo across the sky. Yeah. It was, that was fun. Yeah. And so you had about, you still had about nine kilometers to get to Santa Catalina de Somoza. What, what drew you there as a, as a spot to spend the night? Cause there, there were other places to stop along the way. Was there, was there something in particular that appealed to you? There wasn't. Uh, it was once again uh, um, very much in keeping with how we were uh, very deliberately approaching the Camino, which was we will walk as many miles each day as we would like to, and then we will stop. <laughs> um, and yeah, so we walked into the town. I think it had two albergues, one on the right and one on the left. Yep. We chose the one on the left more or less at random. <laughs> uh, we found it had a washing machine. We were happy to use that. Um, and the only thing I remember about that really is that they had this tiny little metal frog bolted to a board next to the washing machine with these little iron discs that look like super fat coins. Yeah. You, you stand there and you try and toss the coins into the frog's mouth. You've seen this. You sound like I, I played with one of those at a spot 
gosh, it was probably 15 kilometers or 10 kilometers after Roncevalle, like a really small um, cafe. And yeah, my students and I, we must have spent a half hour trying to chuck those discs <laughs> in the frog's mouth. <laughs> Dude, were you successful? I never uh, did. I stood there. I did my laundry. And I tried to check those little discs, and uh, I got a couple that were close, but I never made one in. In fact, I'm like, I'm going to go inside. Yeah, we got it. We got some in, but uh, <laughs> I, I would. I, I still don't. I wouldn't characterize it as successful. <laughs> the frog won, but uh, it was it was a good time. You know what I like about this walk is that every like five to seven kilometers. You've got a really nice little spot that you're passing through. So, Murias de Rechivaldo, that's like four and a half kilometers from Astorga. And then Santa Catalina de Somoza is another four and a half kilometers. And then El Ganso with the cowboy bars, four kilometers more. Then Rabanal is seven. Then Fonse Badon is five. So, like every hour, hour and a half, you've got a cool little town or village to pause in. Like, like one of the things I, I keep on saying is, you know, we walked a certain amount and then decided to stay there. There were a couple of times where we knew a lot of people would be congregating because they wanted to see something or do something. And so we would just a little bit avoid those on purpose. We mm -hmm. were kind of going for a little bit of a quieter moment. And so I know a lot of people stop uh, as close as they can to cruise de Faro so they can get up very early and, and see it at sunrise. Uh, and we thought about that and we thought, yeah, that sounds magical. That sounds wonderful. Also, it sounds very crowded. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's just take it at our own pace. Let's not stress about that. Let's not stress about how many miles, you know, that we have to do if we want to see this particular thing. Um, and I think that was a, a really good choice for us. Did you stop at the cowboy bar? We did not stop at the cowboy yeah, bar. <laughs> it's, it's one of those places. Like, it has been there. I don't know how long it's been there. Certainly at least 15 years since I first set foot in it. And I know that many had preceded me there. But it is genuinely bizarre to be in the foothills of Spain. And that's literally the name. It's not translated. The Cowboy Bar. And the decorations in the interior are almost exactly what you would imagine. There's one large table inside, and I, I think the silverware is probably cleaned occasionally. But um, <laughs> it's it's very much the vibe that one might imagine. So uh, it's a fascinating spot. A lot of people will stop in, in Rabanal or Fonsebadon. Those are the two most popular places to spend the night. Rabanel del Camino has the confraternity of St. James Albergue and a, and a couple of others. So ton of beds in Rabanal and Fonse Badon is is almost a mythic place on the Camino. What are your recollections of Fonse Badon? Again, one of the more famous spots along the Camino. Of Fonse Badon specifically, we had a very friendly cat. <laughs> <laughs> so my girlfriend loves cats. I like cats as well. Uh, it became a, a sort of a running joke. How many photos could I get along the entire Camino of, of her petting a cat? And the one that was hanging out at the little store in Fonse Badon was, was certainly a, a very, very friendly, very happy cat. Uh, that cat snuggled up with my girlfriend for a while. And then when she went to the store to buy some stuff, he came over and, you know, started rubbing up against my leg as well. Um, so that, that was great. I just, you know, a little moment like that. Before we got to, to that part, though, somewhere along the line, I forget exactly which set of towns it was. Um, we ran into a guy who was dressed up as a Knights Templar with hmm. a Harrier Hawk. I think that's in Ravenal. Yeah, so that was great. Um, when we got there, it was a little bit early in the morning. He was still sort of setting up his tent. And he saw us come up. He's like, here, hold this. And just handed the bird <laughs> to my girlfriend. When he went and he just kept on finishing setting up the tent, I'm like, okay. So I pulled my camera and, and, and get a bunch of photos of him. 
Um, so that was that was really fun. And then we got our credentials stamped by him as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the most fun part of that is that when he wrote the dating, he wrote it in in Roman numerals. <laughs> Uh, all the authenticity. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, Rod, we've we've made it to our destination, and the windstorm has not caused either of us to lose power. So, I think we can consider this to be a success. <laughs> do, any? Do you have any last thoughts on this stage that didn't fit their way in up to this point, or any closing thoughts on on this stretch between Leon and Fonse Baron? Yeah, a, a longer conversation there, but a couple things you're like, eh, if you do this again, you know, yeah. have this meal in Astorga or, you know, go to the chocolate factory. I think, and, and I've thought this for a while now, I think that Fonspadon would be a really fantastic place to spend the night and do that. Get up very early and, and see the sunrise at Cruz de Ferro. Cruz de Ferro was, was another magical experience for us. Uh, it actually hailed on us while we were <laughs> there, which we just stood with huge grins on our face and smiled at, at the absurdity and, and adventure of it, of it all. Hey, Rod, thanks very much for, for talking with me about this stretch. I think a lot of people, especially people who are planning their walk for the first time, will appreciate hearing your stories from along the way. Thank you very much for, uh, for talking with me. I had a really wonderful time. Speaking with Bob Scheidt of Hoodstown, Pennsylvania, and we are going to continue this series rewalking the Camino Frances, focusing today on Fonse Badon to O Sobrero. Thanks for joining with me to talk about this glorious stretch of the Camino, Bob. I'm both thrilled and honored to be on one of my favorite podcasts. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Thank you for that. What is your background with the Camino? What is your experience with this route? Well, I, I'm going to give you a little lead up so you know some of the stuff that I've done before because it sheds light on the difference of doing a Camino as opposed to some of the things I did. But, mm-hmm. you know, 45 years ago when I was in my teens, I, I always wanted to be an adventurer. That was something from little on up. Hmm. And, and then in the last 40 years, I've done a ton of backpacking, hiking, mountain climbing all over the U.S., uh, in my 30s, I started running marathons. I did 20 of them. I did 30 ultra marathons, wow. a lot of trail 50 milers. I once did a six-day race where I walked for six straight days and nights. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and and then in my 40s, I started walking across states. In 99, I walked across America, uh, at the very north, uh, right along the Canadian line, wow. and four of the five Great Lakes. And then uh, and then after that, I. Uh, combination bicycle and walked across the per- around the perimeter of the United States. Wow. Um, so really at 58 years of age, which is four years ago, mm-hmm. uh, I knew it was time for a new, a new adventure on a new continent. Hmm. And um, that's when I started to do the research uh, uh, and, and came across the Camino and thought that would be perfect, the perfect way to introduce me to, to first Spain and then maybe eventually branch out to some of the other Caminos. And yeah, and I was very excited about, about that fact and, and prepared for it uh, the way I did for all my adventures. So, so I'm coming to the Camino with a, a, a background in all kinds of adventures. Mm-hmm. And I treated the Camino as just another adventure. Hmm. And, you know, I, I consider myself a spiritual being. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm re- I, I do a lot of reading. I, I'm, I'm a, a deacon in the Lutheran Church. Hmm. 
but I, I was, I was well prepared for the hardships and vigor of the Camino physically, mm-hmm. but I was, I was just amazed how that first Camino in 2013 from, from Zejan Port all the way to Finisterre and Musha mm-hmm. just basically, I know people, it's almost become a cliche, but it changed my life. Mm. I, it affected the way I look at things. And, and long after I'm home, it, the effects continues. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, I can get goosebumps at any time, uh, you know, of the day at work, just thinking of a certain section or someone I met on the, on the Camino. And, yeah, I was not prepared for that kind of almost uh, emotional and spiritual deepness that it gave me after I completed that first one in 2013. And, um, you know, now, now I, you know, I've been going back I, in 2014. I went back and I did La Puy across France from La Puy to Pamplona. And then last year I started in Lisbon and did the, the Portuguese way all the way to Santiago. I had an extra two and a half weeks left uh, when I got to Santiago. So I went back, took the train back to Leon and walked uh, back to Santiago. Hmm. And each one has continues to have a profound effect on me. Wow. And I, I, you know, I struggle a little bit to articulate that. For me, it's it's more of a maybe <laughs> in the back of my mind, it's supposed to be a mystery. I guess I, mm. I something maybe I'll never figure it out, but it don't really matter because I'm I keep going back and doing them. And this year in the spring, I went and finally I I've always been looking at the the Camino del Norte, mm-hmm. and uh, oh, it was I I did it in in the middle of March, and I it just blew my mind. I just couldn't believe it's now absolutely my favorite of mm. all the Caminos I've done. And it was very difficult. The weather was a lot of times, you know, there was some sleet involved, 50 mile an hour winds, <laughs> a lot of rain, but I, it doesn't matter. I didn't, I mm. don't care about that. The problem is when I got halfway across, I was, I was approaching Gahan, going well, feeling well physically and that my mom passed away back here in the States. And uh, I returned home. I prepared the funeral and I, gave the, the eulogy and um, now I will return in 2017 to that point where I stop and I will mm. complete the, the Norte uh, into Santiago. Man. So, um, so to talk about the section, I've done it twice then, two years in between. Mm-hmm. So I, I got a, a real perspective of two different kinds of weather different people I met and uh, I can really use that to, to play off each other. Both years were different. That's awesome. Well, let's jump into it then. So we're talking Fonse Badon to Osobrero, which is generally done in three stages and the different guides out there slice it up a little bit differently. And I think the Dintamin and Landis hiking the Camino guide lines up most conveniently with our purposes. So I'll refer to those okay. numbers. Um, and their suggested first stage is Fonse Badon to Ponferrada, which is about 27 kilometers. So let's use that as a starting point. What do you remember about Fonse Badon, our starting point for this walk? In 2013, the first year I did it, I stayed in Rabanal. And so in the morning, walking up through Fonse Badon, mm-hmm. uh, it, was, it was foggy and I didn't sleep there. I could, you know, right up to Cruz de Ferro. But I, I really thought that Fonse Bedon, it really was 
a bit decrepit. <laughs> uh, it really it looked rough. And I know in, in Paulo Colo's book, yep. uh, there, there, he's had a big going on there with the dogs. But you know, back in 2016, when I came by again, mm-hmm. it looked like it was starting to be a revival. There were some new albergues. Yep. I stayed there that night. That day was clear as a bell as I got to it. And uh, I, I thought it was just wonderful. Still parts of it, uh, you know, they're still working on it. It's yeah. a work in progress. Uh, but that night, I went up on the hill and stood and looked out. I could see Astoria off in the distance, the lights of Astoria. There were just a billion stars out that night. I stood for half an hour. And even now, just talking about it, I still get goosebumps. Mm. It was just a wonderful half hour looking out over the, you know, where I had just come from. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I just thought it was a, a really magical night. It's a legendary spot on the Camino for the reason in part that you mentioned that it was documented quite vividly in some of those early pilgrim journals that came out in the 1990s when it was starting to come back together along, you know, Paulo Coelho, Shirley MacLaine. Uh, there are a lot of stories about people being attacked by dogs there, and maybe in part because there weren't that many people left. So this is one of those villages that had been significant in the Middle Ages. It hosted a major church council in the 10th century, but by the time the Camino was being resuscitated in the 1980s, it was basically entirely in ruins. Um I remember being there in 2004 with my first student group and there was just the municipal albergue at that point and we slept uh, on the floor of the church that night and there were very f- there was one restaurant that was open but otherwise there was really nothing functional in that town so it's as you said already come back to life quite a bit thanks to the pilgrim traffic I knew I felt something there especially that second time that was, you know, once again, one of those things that's hard to explain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it'd be great if it can make a comeback because there's something valuable there. Absolutely. And from there, it is a very short walk up to another famous and magical place along the walk. You alluded to it before, the Cruz de Ferro. Just a couple kilometers uphill. It's at 1,500 meters. And this is the giant stone pile with the iron cross sticking out the top. What do you remember of your walks up to the Cruz de Ferro. Okay, so both times, this is one of those hard to explain things again, but I was <laughs> I was a little bit underwhelmed because I know that it's a big focal point and everyone talks about it. And the first time I brought some stones from all the different shores that I had walked along in the U.S., like the Pacific Ocean and uh, four of the five Great Lakes and the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico and just real little stones and they were all very different, and I, I put all them there. So there was very significant uh, little ceremony, mm-hmm. and it was a, a foggy that first year. Second year was still clear, so there were differences. In, in The second time, I didn't even have a stone with me, because I hadn't planned at, at, at that point of going back until I got done earlier coming from Lisbon. So I, I didn't have a stone that time. But I don't know, it just... Uh, it's not like a big high point in, in either of my two Caminos. It was significant. I took the requisite pictures there, and, and you know, the, <laughs> everything's great about that. But uh, I, I didn't even linger long. I sort of continued on quickly, mm. and I'll tell you why. Maybe something was calling me both times. Well, the second time I knew what was coming. <laughs> that section from Cruz de Ferro all the way to where you start the descent, 
mm-hmm. down is probably my favorite part of the whole Frances. Mm. And being a mountain man and, and <laughs> loving the mountains, that section was just wonderful, the way the trail snaked and, and undulated. And uh, off in the distance, there were so many snow-covered mountains. Because even that first year, the fog had lifted by that point when I started down. Mm-hmm. So both years, I had really clear weather for that section. And I think it lasts maybe like five or six kilometers maybe mm-hmm. almost seven or so before you start the descent. And I was both times, I just basically floated through there. <laughs> where, where one of those times where you don't look at your watch, you have no idea what time it is. You don't care. There's just no dimension uh, for measuring time. It just both times were for me, some of my favorite times on the whole Frances. To illustrate just how uh, enjoyable that was for you, it's actually nine and a half kilometers, so <laughs> oh, <laughs> it see, felt like See, five. yeah, it, I really, yeah. <laughs> and, he, and you know, in Margarine, which comes in soon after Cruz de Ferro, is such a, a, a strange place. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the Templar guy there and yeah. the way it's decorated with all those signs for parts unknown all over the world it's just it just adds to the whole effect yeah absolutely a lot of stories that are um, tied <laughs> yeah. up in this stretch of the walk right so you alluded to yeah. um Cristofero that you carry your your rock from from home from the beginning of the camino and when you leave it on the Cristofero you are disemburdening yourself of the of the sins that you have carried along the way and then you get to Manharin a couple of kilometers later and this is where Tomas who claims to be the last surviving knight templar maintains this long standing um refugio which is you know we now refer to most of the pilgrim hostels as albergues but go back a, a decade and they were refugios you know refuges they were far more rustic and this reflects that really classical refuge where there's no electricity there are no showers um, it's in the mountains Tomas has had to fight over the years to prevent the Spanish government from shutting it down but there's a certain spirit to the place that if you are comfortable with a more rustic place then you are really into Tomas's spot in Manharin yeah, uh, but once again, both times I did not stay there overnight. It was <laughs> still fairly early in the morning, but I I would have no problem staying there one of these times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, and then after that, like I say, I was sort of floating uh, both years through that beautiful section. Mm-hmm. But boy, I tell you what, you wake up real fast because that is one of the <laughs> toughest descents down into a seaball. And uh, I'm I'm a great climber. I've always been a big climber. And I pass people on the climbs. But you know what? A lot mm. of times those same people pass me on the descents. <laughs> I am a slow descender. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and that is, that is quite the descent with very, uh, a lot of rocks and sand, and, and it, it's slidey at times, and people do get hurt on that section occasionally. So you don't want to rush that section at all. Yeah, and I'm one of those people who does not follow that wise advice you've offered. Um, I I love downhill, and you know this is one of those habits you get into walking with young people, where you just start bounding through downhill. And <laughs> what, man, one of my favorite memories is of this stretch. Like you, I love the walk from uh, from Cruz de Ferro to El Acebo, and in part because one year a student and I discovered that. 
you know, in, at some of the time, the the route basically follows the winding minor road. But there was a dirt road that forked right towards this hill. And there was this series of hills with a dirt road connecting them. And so we could run up one hill, down it, up another hill, down it. And the whole time it paralleled the Camino and took us to these other viewpoints. And I mean, it was it was awesome. But and you know, if you are fortunate enough to descend into El Acebo on a clear day, it's incredible. And, you know, it it justifies going slowly on the downhill, not just because you're going to prevent doing damage to your body, but also because, you know, the purple flowers are out. The view overlooking the village is incredible. It is one of the most heart-stopping moments, I think, that arrival in El Acebo. And, you know, the exhilaration of right before you get into El Acebo has an effect on, I think, both times I stopped there and had a huge second breakfast mm-hmm. uh, and was, like, so hungry. And I think it was just <laughs> the pure exhilaration was, was burning calories. So, uh, yeah, so I also remember quite, like it happened yesterday, that, that I was very hungry and ate a lot at both times. <laughs> and if, you're, if your knees are still okay at that point, well... I've got bad news because the uh-huh. next eight kilometers are going to finish them off because yep. the downhill from El Acebo to Molina Seca might be even harder, especially in those last few kilometers downhill to Molina Seca. It's a beautiful walk through the trees, but it's tough sledding. It, it is definitely continues. Yep. It's, <laughs> I don't know what the total elevation uh, you lose there, but boy, it's it's quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And if there's one spot on the Camino Frances that I have never stayed in, that I badly wish I had, and if I end up on the Frances again, I will, it's Molina Seca, which is just a gorgeous village perched on a river that is set up for swimming in the summer, and it must just be awesome to stay there. Yeah, it's one of my favorite favorite place, villages, and I stayed there both times. Mm. So I was very lucky. And I know I spend most of the afternoon, both times, sitting by the river right under the bridge. <laughs> and people were walking across the bridge. And, you know, if, if they you had met them earlier, they would see you sitting down there. Some would stop in. Some would keep going. Most of them would just yell, you know, <laughs> greeting. And, uh, I, yeah, both times. And I, I tell you what, the second time I sat with a German guy. And uh, a woman from, she spent half the year in India, but she was from the United States. Mm-hmm. And then there were two German, younger German girls. And they, none of them had known each other, but had sort of formed a bit of an alliance and were walking together for many, many weeks at that point. <laughs> and I sat with them and became very fast friends. And that the rest of the way, all the way to Santiago and now even beyond, we are still very close friends. So that was a very... Uh, landmark spot right there that I that I met all of them for the first time. Mm, that's awesome. The walk from there to f- wrap up this first stage to Ponferrada is not especially interesting, especially after how glorious the walk has been preceding it. But, you know, again, I'm walking with teenagers and we've got a giant castle in front of us. So that is incentive enough to truck on uh, to Ponferrada and its gigantic albergue 
and uh, gigantic castle. So um, a really great town. It's it's been a while since you've been in a a big city with uh, a lot of facilities and resources, and that's definitely Ponferrada. So um, you get there both times early in the morning. Have you had a chance to go into the castle? Uh, yes, I'm. I'm real big on Templar history. I'm. <laughs> I'm like. I, I love studying that, reading about it. So the first year, I was totally uh, anticipating this, though I still did make the lap both times into Campo, which <laughs> adds a little bit of mileage but gets you off the road. Yep. And uh, both times, and I did it again the second time, even when I knew it was a little longer because I just, I just sort of liked that little walk there away from. Me. I saw most of the other. The other pilgrims were going straight and going right into Ponferrada, but both times I went through Campo, mm-hmm. and uh, the first year I got to that castle, and I'm uh, it's about nine nine o'clock, and I, you see they didn't open till eleven, but I just sat at the one cafe <laughs> looking the waiting for them to open. When they opened, I took two hours and just explored all over the inside of that castle, went every little nook and cranny. I went up in the towers. And I'd see other pilgrims walking by uh, who I knew I would yell to them. And it would shock them to see me up there in, in the tower <laughs> like I was living there. And uh, so that was a real thrill. So Ponferrada is uh, the end of this first stage. And the second stage from here, according, you know, in Dintamin and Landis's guide is to Via Franca del Bierzo, which is about 24 kilometers and this is where you are between the mountains. So you're in the Bierzo Valley, and so the walk is a bit flatter. It's sort of gently undulating hills, but uh, a chance to for the body to recover uh, after that significant downhill. Yeah, I, I like this. I like this section too. You said it's it's between the two big mountains, gives you a little bit of a breather, and uh, you can you know get ready for the next big climb. And uh, the first year, I stayed in Casabellas. Yeah, in the albergue with the two-bed rooms, right? Yes. Yep, <laughs> yep. I stayed at that. It's the municipal yep. albergue. And I thought that was very unique, the way they they had these uh, plywood uh, little sectionals. And you shared them. I shared it with a German guy, mm-hmm. a young kid. So that was great. The second time, two years later, when I did it, I continued on all the way to Via Franco and um, stayed in, in the new albergue there that had just opened up, uh, Albergue Leo. It was a family, and I had a great time there. I hung out with some bicyclists from Spain, hmm. and uh, they, they the family was wonderful. I, I got to know them, and uh, they had made dinner right there for us. Yeah, I really did like that. And, of course, Via Franca is just a absolutely gorgeous place with the river and yeah it's just a a great pilgrim city it's funny my most memorable walk through this section was actually in the dark Uh, there there was one year that uh, my group we were staying in Ponferrada and we had a really long day scheduled the next day and some of the students were dreading it you know the long distance and it was going to be hot and so this idea started circulating. What if what if we set out tonight and walked at night and just walked for you know, a few hours until we're too tired to keep going? And then we'll just sleep outside and we'll, we'll take a big piece out of tomorrow's walk. And the idea built up to the point where it was clear there was a good chunk of them that were really serious about it. So I thought, what the heck? Let's let's try it. And 
And so we did. We left Pomferrada um, around 8 p.m. as the sun was starting to go down. And we walked through Compo- the, the, the series of sea villages, Compostilla, Colubrianos, Campo Naraya, Cacabelos. And I got to say, it's one of the most fun walks I've ever had. We ended up being in the dark for a good chunk of it. But the crazy thing is, you know, this is Spain. If we were walking at one or two in the afternoon, everything would be closed. But we were walking through these villages at 10 p.m. and everything was open. We had no trouble getting food wherever we wanted it. We would eat in one village thinking, well, this is probably our last shot for the night. And then we'd walk five kilometers further and something would be open and we'd feel like, what the heck, let's eat something more. So we just had a great time. We walked for a few hours. We slept under a tree a few kilometers outside of Via Franca del Bierzo. And we were there in time for fried eggs for breakfast. So it was uh, it was a really memorable stretch, despite the fact that we didn't see any of the beautiful farmland. So this is famous wine country now. So there are a lot of wine options. Cacabelos is is associated with that, as is Via Franca del Bierzo. And that's where this second stage ends. And as you said, it is a beautiful town situated at the confluence of two rivers, has some historical significance. There's a a, a castle that's still there, a couple of really nice churches, including one perched on this just perfectly positioned hill that overlooks the the valley beneath it. So a gorgeous spot to rest in advance of the last major uphill of the trip. Yes. I have two different viewpoints from the two years now coming out of Via Franco. Mm-hmm. The first year, I had had a really bout, a bad bout of food poisoning and spent two days in Leon recovering and was coming back from that and wasn't totally, a little queasy yet, wasn't totally energetic. So that first year, I chose just to walk along the road out of Via Franco and, and continuing up towards Osobrero. Mm-hmm. And, uh, as opposed to the Predella route mm-hmm. that takes you up through the mountains. Uh, and I, I, being a mountain man, this is, this is a hard decision. Uh, and, and it was very hot that day, so that section along the road, mm-hmm. uh, it was a lot of traffic. And, you know, it's fairly safe because they got the barriers up and stuff. But, yeah, it was, you know, a way to get through it and save my energy for the big climb. That day I got as far as Portello. Mm-hmm. At the albergue there, El Peregrino, mm-hmm. and uh, I had a great, like a beef stew dinner, and I sat out on the porch in the front there and, and ate it, and that was my first meal that really went down well and felt <laughs> felt good. I knew I had recovered, so maybe I did the right thing the way I played it. I felt a little guilty because I'm looking across the fields that the cattle are over there and their bells are ringing and here I am eating one of these really great beef stews and I knew that I was in a good position to go on up Sobrero the next day. Mm. Now, two years later, I was with the Germans and and my friend from uh, the USA by way of India and as a group, we decided to do the the Fidela route and and it was spectacular. (laughs) It was a clear blue sky day the climb went really well, even though it's very steep. And then the views back into Via Franco are just uh, superb. And um, it, it was, yeah, it was just everything about that whole thing. We even stopped at the bar mm-hmm. in Pradella. We went a little off the route and had a great sandwich and, uh, and then continued on. The descent is not absolutely too bad mm-hmm. because a lot of, some of it is on the road. 
so that I was so glad that I did that section. And, you know, this brings up another point here. Hmm. On your podcast, you talked about the Dra- Dragonti route. <laughs> I did, yeah. Yeah, and I heard that story about your misadventures <laughs> over there. Yep. And that is that the that route sounds and looks like exactly made for me. This is that's my <laughs> type of stuff. But you know, I got a new. I just downloaded onto my e-reader the new guide from Briarly, mm-hmm. and I didn't, maybe I didn't look right. But I don't even think put on there yeah. in the map that they not put it on there because it wasn't marked that well and. Uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if he's ever had it in there. It's it, almost nobody does it. It's it is not well waymarked, and I, yeah. I I think that as a as a guidebook publisher, you'd probably be a little nervous about leading people into uh, into some trouble by promoting it too yeah. extensively. So yeah, I wonder how many people, if if any, are still going over onto that. But obviously, the third time I come through there now, <laughs> I've got to do that. There was just a post about someone walking it on the Camino Forum online, and uh, um, they they did a really nice job of taking some pictures and talking through some of the waymarking difficulties. So you should definitely check oh. that out in advance of. Oh, okay. Yeah, this stretches. You know, there are definitely those two major options: the flat option if you want to conserve some energy for the final ascent up to Osobrero, or the mountain option if you want more mountains and. There are a lot of really nice places to stay along the way if you want to break up the walk and not stay in Via Franca. So you mentioned Portela. I've had a great night in Vega de Valcarce and also particularly in Ruitelan where um, the hospitality is just fantastic. Um, one of the things I really like about Vega is there is a, a castle on the hill um, opposite the the, the river and it's an old Saracen castle, and it's largely in ruins, and almost nobody goes there. But, you know, if you climb up the hill and you go into the castle, it is just you alone um, on these crumbling ramparts overlooking just um, overgrown green trees in all directions. So it's a spectacular spot to hang out. I saw that off in the distance mm-hmm. this this last time I went up through there and uh and I, it was it's on my list for once again for the <laughs> third third time I come through there um yeah so so the first year I I went from Portello then all the way to the top of Sobrero mm-hmm. uh this second uh, two years later I went I stopped at Harrieres Uh, There was an albergue there, one of them, and it was a very, we had a very healthy dinner that night. It was uh, for the vegetarians. It was well prepared for them. (laughs) Yeah, it is a a vegetarian albergue, right? Yeah, yes, and and I am not a vegetarian, but it was very good fare. It was well cooked and uh, one of the better meals on on the Camino. So me and me and the gang stayed there, and that put us really in close proximity for the climb the next day. So the climb up back in 2013 was quite unique. The climb itself went really well. It was very overcast, sort of warm, not a lot of wind or anything. It sort of felt a little ominous. Something's <laughs> coming in. And, uh, you know, you spend a lot of time outdoors, you know these, this stuff. And uh, I got to the top, and soon after, and that's like around um, noon, it starts to snow. It's wow. April 25th. I went immediately over to the the big municipal albergue on top there. It holds 105 people. Mm-hmm. And 
it started to continue to snow through the afternoon very lightly, but through the night, it, the wind started picking up and it, it just sounded like you were, you know, in the Arctic or something <laughs> through the night. There were 110 pilgrims there. Five of them had to actually sleep on mats because uh, there were only 105 beds. And uh, everyone, you know, really anticipating what's this going to be like tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. It was very warm in there because it's sort of like that cows in the barn theory where a lot of people even here in Pennsylvania, <laughs> they don't have a lot of heat in the, they don't have heated barns, but when you have a lot of cows in the barn, all the body heat maintains the temperature for survival. So, mm-hmm. and then the next morning, uh, it was still snowing lightly, wind howling, about two inches on the ground, and we started trudging on and uh, starting to work our way down. It was very, a very difficult day. I think most pilgrims had on every all the clothing that they were carrying. <laughs> Because it just the wind just blew right through you. It was uh, probably the coldest day on the on the Camino of that whole year. And now that I talk back to a few of the people that I'm still friends with, a lot of them agree that it was one of their favorite days because it just was so uh, challenging and unique that it was April 25th, and and here it is snowing that much. And uh, it it made Sobrero even more magical than it is already. Yeah, it's uh, it is a magical place, and I mean it, this is a magical stretch of the trip. I know that word's been used a few times, but my goodness, um, this is the walk from Via Franca to O Sobrero is about twenty eight kilometers, and that's the direct route via the road. So this is a stretch that may be a bit too ambitious for some, especially those who aren't as comfortable with the ascent. It's about 800 meters up to Osobrero. And once you get up to the top, it is a landscape unlike anything else on the Camino. And it's where you can really see uh, the Celtic traditions of this region because the defining architecture of Osobrero is the Piozza, the large stone structure with a thatched roof that runs throughout the entire village. Uh, yeah, and I know this end section here ends in Sobrero, but that descent, uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed that. It's a very exhilarating, it's not, it, there's parts that are steep, but it's never, it, it's sort of, it's very gradual for a long day mm-hmm. down through there, and a lot of those little towns are great, and then it continues on to another of my favorite places. I was there both years in Samos. Yeah, and we'll we'll get there in a, in another conversation to come. But you're yes. absolutely right. That oh. is that is a good one. And you know, le- you know, wrapping up in Osobrero, it's a place where I don't know if it's better, if it's more magical, if you get there on a clear day, or if you're there like I've been when it is completely ensconced in fog and you can't see more than ten feet in front of you. But regardless of the conditions, it is. Uh, it's a great place to go and spend a night or or at least to have a really long extended break climbing up the hill overlooking the town looking down on all of the old structures and the and the view into Galicia as you continue on towards Santiago. Yes. Thanks for joining me and talking about this stretch and sharing some of your rich experiences walking from Fonsebadon to Osobrero. Uh, thanks a lot for letting me talk on this podcast.
stories to tell and great places to talk about, it's no surprise that there were a couple of glaring omissions in the conversations that Bob, Rod, and I had about this stretch from Leon to Osobrero. The most notable omission that really merits some commentary now is the Casa de los Dioses. This small spot was situated between Santibanez and San Justo de la Vega shortly before Astorga. And you might not recognize the name, but if you've walked the Camino at any point in the really the last decade or so, you know the spot. This is where David, David Vidal, set up shop. He moved there after essentially the life that he had been living fell apart. And he established a very humble residence, living without power, without water, and offering a a small table, a kiosk with some snacks, some beverages available to pilgrims as they walked by, all for donation. And more than anything else, David offered conversation, uh, a place to relax, rest for a bit, perhaps uh, an opportunity for the for the spirit to be rejuvenated or engaged in a positive, caring way. And unfortunately, if you have not encountered David Vidal up to this point, you won't, because uh, very recently, about a month ago, David decided to move on, to leave the Casa de los Dioses behind, the house of the gods that he had established and, and filled with so much kindness and uh, camaraderie and uh, and move on to something else and sadly and regrettably in his comments and you can find them online if you if you search for them a couple of news agencies shot videos with him interviewing him about his experience as he moved on he he sounds burned out uh, from years and years of uh, of gentle service and he commented on what he increasingly perceived to be a certain hypocrisy uh, in the Camino and the ways in which the spiritual or religious components were increasingly getting edged out by the uh, maybe more cynical business aspects and the the route perhaps becoming more of a of a tourist itinerary instead of a, a sacred journey. And you know, this is not the time or the place to debate the the merits of his viewpoint the merits, you know, to the degree that they could be judged objectively or largely irrelevant to this. I think that what David was doing is um, an incredibly selfless task. And this is something we see certainly in, in individuals running albergues year-round, but really across the nonprofit realm in general, that, that burnout is, is a real thing, that when you put your heart and your soul um, and all of your time and effort into something that is inherently selfless, it's hard to sustain that for a long time. When you are running on optimism and hope, compassion, and just complete trust in the people around you, it's very easy to come out of that vulnerable position bruised and hurt. And uh, I hope for David's sake that what he hears from all of the pilgrims who reflect fondly on their experiences with him 
and what he might read online if he were to do so is a great deal of gratitude uh, from the many pilgrims who were touched by his his sacrifice, his concern, and his charity, his kindness along the Camino for so many years. And uh, it won't be the same walking through that stretch without him. It will still be lovely. It will still be memorable. But uh, it will feel like there's a hole, that there's something missing. And we'll have to hope that others step up to offer what he provided, which is so sorely needed along the way. And that's going to do it for this episode, episode 25. Thanks again to Rod and to Bob for joining me to speak about this section. Thanks in particular to Bob, who, you know, we had our conversation actually in the spring before I headed to Spain, and it just took a long time to bring together the full episode, the second interview, and uh, I really appreciate his patience for, for sticking with me as we move through this process. As always, you can find the podcasts online at northerncaminos.com. You can find us on Facebook, Camino Podcast, facebook.com slash Camino Podcast. And again, you can find us on the Camino Forum. Get in touch if you are interested in being involved in a future episode, Camino Podcast at gmail.com. And that's it. Thanks very much. More episodes coming, interviews lined up. Get ready. They're going to start coming more frequently. Thanks for listening.